0: If you think about your um, relationships, your relational circle, what's the longest lasting relationship, still functional relationship that you have in your life? If I think about my life, just in terms of sheer um, longevity, there are two relationships that I think stand out to me. There, there's a friend that I've had since grade one. Actually, our, our friendship began with a little bit of a a mutual lunchbox admiration society I uh, I loved his Wayne Gretzky lunchbox he admired my Star Wars lunchbox and we decided that that was enough um, for us to be friends and um, we've stayed friends all the way through public school all the way through high school. We traveled Europe together. We went to a Bible school in Austria together, which he told me I would be attending primarily because it sat at the bottom of a ski hill. It's a relationship, a friendship that's always been um, a part of my life since grade one. It's gone through phases as our life has gone through seasons. But um, I know, I mean, to me today, it is as real as the day that it was when I walked in as the new kid. In the middle of grade one. I think about uh, my cousin. Whom I've known even longer. Whom I've known since I was born. Um, probably of anybody I know. My cousin understands the greatest percentage of the diversity of the things that make me up. He, uh, he gets more of the different parts of me than probably anybody else alive and that's that's from similarities and from longevity uh he had a birthday recently i don't usually do this i sent him a birthday email and i and once i was typing it i didn't know what to type i i basically sent him a message that said what do you say after you know 40 some odd years i literally don't know what it's like to live my life without his friendship. As I think about those kinds of relationships, the question that comes to my mind is, what is it that gives some relationships that kind of staying power? That kind of durability? What is it that makes some relationships last and others not so much? Certainly a variety of things, circumstances and personalities and all sorts of things. But of the the things that we contribute, Or the things that are attributable to us. What's the difference between a relationship that has staying power and one that doesn't? That's the question that motivates this entire series. That's what we're going to spend the month talking about as we look at the wisdom literature of the Jewish scriptures. In other words, the, the books of wisdom in the Old Testament of the Bible. Now, almost exclusively, we're going to spend this entire month looking at the book of Proverbs, which is a book filled with ancient Jewish cliches that provide basically practical wisdom for what it means to live life along the grain of the universe. In the way that life is meant to be lived, in a way that works. But to start this morning, we're going to open up in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter four, and we're going to start in verse seven where the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes does some reflecting on the nature of relationships themselves. He says this, Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse seven, I saw something meaningless under the sun. It was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother and yet there was, there was no end to his toil and yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked himself, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a, a miserable business. That's the framework of the of the book of ecclesiastes the writer is reflecting on things that give life meaning and things that are meaningless and he seems to recall a scenario of a person that he once knew a man who was a hard working guy but who was literally all alone it says he had neither uh, brother nor son. When you think about work in the ancient world, the two people that you would be able to count on to help you with the work, who would share in the labor and share in the profits, were your brother and your son. But he didn't have either of those. But it's actually, it feels like it's deeper than that, because the writer of Ecclesiastes says he, had, he was all alone. Almost as though he had no one, no wife, no children of any kind no neighbors no um, friends no colleagues nobody and in effect the story sounds like someone who had pretty much alienated or distanced himself or drifted away from and lost track of everybody in his life because of his work a number of years ago there was a australian or a palliative care nurse named Bonnie Ware she wrote a book called the top five regrets of the dying and it was based on her 12 years of conversation with palliative patients and the number two regret based on her conversations being expressed by those who were dying he said she said some women and literally every single man she talked to in 12 years the number two regret was this I wish I hadn't worked so hard I wish I hadn't spent so much time at the office. There wasn't a single person who said, you know what? I I wish I had uh, spent more time at the office. I wish I had been away from my family more often. I've been away from my friends. The number four regret of the top five where people said, I wish I had stayed in better touch with my friends. I wish I hadn't lost track, lost contact. The people who mattered most. This man seems to have lived an existence that was some tragic combination of the two of those regrets. And he wakes up one day and he says, What am I doing this for? What am I working so hard? I've got nobody to share this with. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says that that's meaningless. The, The word means like a vapor or a mist or a piece of dust. It means literally a nothing, something that's empty and purposeless He essentially says that's no kind of life Um, and yet we choose it all the time the introverts among us i've spent a lot of the last number of years of my life figuring out that i'm way more introverted than i ever knew that i was the introverts among us can testify that that desire for alone time in order to recharge will expand to fill the space that you give it. Eventually, with enough alone time, you could just find yourself alone. But it's not just an introverted problem, it's an extroverted problem. I spent a lot of years of my life living in a very extroverted fashion, enough to realize that you can develop a network of relationships that is broad enough that all you ever do is offer people fleeting and shallow interactions, and you never actually connect with anybody with any depth. It's a busyness problem. Our families, our hobbies, our work, They keep us running from place to place to place so that at the end of the day, we don't have the time and we don't have the energy to pick up the phone and make a phone call to connect with anybody. It's a social media problem that on social media, my carefully contrived image gets to interact with your carefully contrived image in a carefully controlled fashion that is no real interaction, but makes us feel connected when we haven't really. It's a problem for those who get excluded because there are some people who don't live their life in those kinds of ways. Some people who actually live their lives framed and postured to live in relationship and they get so ignored by the rest of us who are moving so fast or withdrawing so much or whatever that they never actually get invited into relationship. It's a hunger that we all feel. And this idea of this person that the writer remembers who had, was all alone, who had nobody, causes him to begin to think about the power of relationship, the power of we. In verse 9, he says this, two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. He's thinking about this man who worked hard and was all alone. And he said, now imagine the difference if you just add one more person to that. the the, you have a better return on your labor, it says. Uh, He never really specifies what that return is. Maybe what he means is like the African proverb that says, many hands make for light work. Like That as you do your work, if the more people who are involved, the easier the work becomes. We have a similar saying. Two heads are better than one. The more people who are involved in trying to solve a problem, the more creative and innovative your problem solving becomes. Maybe what he means is he's referring to the joy. That comes when you work together. Many hands make for light work. There's a levity to it. A joyfulness to working together in stuff. Maybe he's referring to the friendship. That can only develop in the context of working side by side. For both Krista and me. Some of the deepest relationships we have. Are with people that we work with every single day. Maybe like C.S. Lewis. What he means is that. When you work side by side with somebody or when you live side by side with a friend, they have a way of helping you become. C.S. Lewis says that lovers live their relationship face to face. But friends don't. Friends live their relationships side by side. Together engaged in a common pursuit. And he says as that happens. I am uniquely positioned to draw something out of you. That would never emerge otherwise. And you are positioned to draw something out of me. We participate with each other in helping each other become. The people we were created to be. You get a better return. You get more out of it. When you live life in community. He gives three examples. All are rooted in this metaphor of life as a journey. See in the ancient world. um, Going on a journey was hard. Trips were difficult. Um, Anybody who has uh, multiple kids. And has done a road trip overnight. Knows exactly what the writer is getting at. Um, In the ancient world most people were poor. Which meant you walked everywhere that you went. There was no cell phone, no GPS, no maps, no en route, no motels. Well, there were motels, but they were too expensive and they were too filled with unsavory characters for most people's safety. Um, You were just kind of out there on your own. It's why the Arabs have a proverb that says, um, journeying is a part of the pain of hell. (laughs) But the writer says, not so if you journey together. In verse 10, he says, if either one of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help him up. The the roads in the ancient world weren't great. They weren't, you know, paved and wide and painted and so on. Um, they were rough, especially as you got outside the city, city limits and in the long stretches of rural highway in between towns, they would, roads would run across a cliff, there would be big potholes, large rocks, there was plenty of opportunity to fall and hurt yourself, sprain your ankle, break something, and then you're, there you were all alone, no one to call, no way to call, and no one knew where you were or how you were doing. Unless you traveled with someone. And this is where the writer of Ecclesiastes says, when we do life together, when we journey together, you've always got somebody to help you, to pick you up when you fall, to support you when you get hurt, to dust you off and keep you moving forward. Verse 11, he says, also if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Nature world without motels. If night fell and you were beyond the reach of a city, there was nowhere to stop except for by the side of the road. And you didn't have an MEC minus twenty sleeping bag and a ThermaRest and a travel pillow to lay down. All you had, literally, was the overcoat you were wearing. And in that semi-arid, semi-desert part of the world, the temperature, which could be forty degrees during the day, would drop like a rock at night. And all you had was your overcoat as a blanket to try and keep you warm. The best strategy for staying warm was to cuddle up with somebody else. Uh, Krista uh, says, every time I'm gone overnight, she freezes to death in our bed. She's in a bed under a big comforter. She said she'll go steal one of the children from their room and cuddle with them as like a little space heater to try and keep her warm at night. I think it's an image of emotional support. I mean, just imagine somebody curled up in the fetal position trying to stay warm and ha- who has someone to wrap themselves around. It's an intimate picture. The rabbi said, you, you don't lie down with somebody unless they are your very best friend. And I should hope not, um, at least not with me. Thank you very much. Um... Mm-hmm. But it's this person who is there in closeness and intimacy when you need it to wrap themselves around you and to keep you warm. Verse 12, he says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Once you get out into the country, that's where the bandits would hide. The muggers and the thieves who wanted what you had to pay for their family's evening meal. And it's like walking through certain neighborhoods. If you're on your own, you have made a foolish decision. But walk with somebody else and you can be safe. He's talking about going through life with somebody who has your back. Somebody who's willing to protect you and fight for you. To keep you safe. This is how he wraps it up. He says, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Um... This is the most ancient rope design known to humanity. This isn't the most ancient rope material known to humanity. Uh, I don't think polypropylene came along until a little bit after the time of Jesus. But the way this rope is constructed, this is a rope that is made up of tiny, tiny little fibers that are all woven together into three separate strands. And then those three separate strands are twisted around each other to become a, a triple braided or a triple twisted rope. These little fibers of themselves with enough work, you can break these with your bare hands. But when they're all twisted together like this, this rope could lift you off the ground. That's the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes. That's his whole point. The strength in numbers that comes when we invest our lives in doing the journey of life together in community. The difference that that makes. And the question is, how do you get to experience that kind of community in your life? The kind of community that can, that can carry you through with this kind of strength. That stays no matter what. That has the staying power to endure through any circumstance. How do you live in that kind of community? Well, I, In Proverbs 27, we're going to look at f- six verses from 5 to 10. The proverbial writer, I think, lays down some important foundation stones for the kind of community that has staying power. That's what he says in verse 8. This is the first one. Community that has staying power requires a commitment to togetherness. That's what he says. Like a bird that flees its nest is anyone who flees from home. Now he's not talking about a bird who flies from its nest to go get food and only to return later. He's talking about a bird that has built a nest for safety, for security, but then for some foolhardy reason gets out of the nest and leaves it behind and decides to do life out in the wild, out in the open, away from the nest. A bird living outside of the nest is susceptible to injury, to wounding, to being trapped, to being killed and eaten. Is sacrificed its entire safety by that one disastrous decision to wander away from the nest. And the writer of the Proverbs says, that's what a person's like who wanders away from their home. He doesn't mean bricks and mortar, the place where you eat and sleep. What he means is the community, the family and friends who surround you and who are responsible for being community with you on the journey of life. See, in the ancient world, your community was the only social safety net you had. They were your emergency services, police, fire, paramedic. They were your insurance, health insurance, disability insurance, employment insurance. They were your child care and your food stamps. They were your retirement, your pension. Literally your family, your community was all that you had. And the proverbial writer says you would be crazy to wander away from that kind of community connection he says stay connected stay together he says something very similar down in verse 10 he says do not forsake your friend or a friend of your family and do not go to your relative's house when a disaster strikes you better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away he says don't forsake your friends your community the word forsake means to abandon or even to drift, to let distance grow, to separate yourself. Don't get separated. Don't drift away from your friend or your excuse me, or a family friend, don't drift away from the community of people who have a long track record of being trustworthy to having your back, to journeying with you, to taking care of you in times of need. In fact, he says those who have a long history of being there for you, those are the most trustworthy people you have. Those people are more trustworthy than your own flesh and blood. The people who are supposed to take care of you. He says, when disaster strikes, go to the nearest person that you can trust to take care of you. The point is, make a commitment to staying connected to the community. Our our connection department talks about um, a frequency of contact. Being intentional. As often as you can. As deeply as you can. And as meaningfully as you can. Of staying in contact with the people who love you. Be intentional about the text message. The iMessage. The Snapchat. Whatever it is that you use. Be intentional about the email. About the card. Be intentional about the pop-by. About hosting. Be intentional about the phone call. the, The how are you doing. The Skype. Be intentional about frequently... And significantly staying in contact with the people who care about you. You want a community to journey with you through life that has some staying power. Make a commitment to togetherness. But it's more than that. He says you got to make a commitment to communication. In verse 5 it says this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Open rebuke. What does he mean? He means someone who uh, will Even callously, unthinkingly, even cruelly call you out, humiliate you in public, whether in person, in a crowd or online for something stupid that you've done. I mean, there's no worse experience, right? Than being called out in front of a whole bunch of people for your stupidity. There is nothing more humiliating than that. There is no worse experience except the proverbial writer says that's not true. You know what's worse than being publicly humiliated for something that you've done? Having a friend who never shows you how much they love you. Hidden love. That's worse. A proverbial writer says you you can't build into community until you develop the reflex to extravagantly express your affection for each other whether through words of encouragement and affirmation and affection, whether it's with acts of service and support and help in times of need, whether it's with gifts and tokens and mementos that say I was thinking about you, whether it's just sheer quality time that you've spent together or even quantity time that you've spent together, whether it's physical touch, whatever's appropriate for that relationship, a hug, a, a kiss, a handshake, a man shake, whatever it happens to be, a pat on the back, There's a neuroscientist named Alex Korb who did some research into physical touch. He says physical touch has the power to reduce psychological pain. He did this experiment. He hooked people up to all sorts of electrodes and he was measuring all their biometrics and whatever. and, And he hooked them up to a source of electricity and he said to them, in just a minute, you are going to receive... An electric shock and he measured their physiological response out of motivated by fear in anticipation of receiving the shock, which of course never came. He was just he wanted to measure the response of fear. And he ran the whole experiment again. He hooked people up exactly the same way. And he says, you're about to receive an electric shock. Hold the hand of somebody you love. And and the participants grabbed the hand of whoever had accompanied them to the experiment. And he said he measured demonstrable drops in the physiological response to fear. Physical touch is a powerful impact in people's lives. But the proverbial writer would say this. It's not enough just to be in contact you can't just commit to togetherness. You have to commit to communication. Even communicating how much you love the other person. Even when the communication of your love is hard or hurtful. In verse 6 he says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. He said someone who's all kisses all the time. All flattery. All hugs. All, oh you look so fabulous. He says that person doesn't have your best interest at heart. It's a friend who loves you enough to be willing to wound you with an open rebuke. Right, that word wound actually means to tear the flesh, to hurt you in a significant way by calling something out of you, by calling out your attitude, by calling out an unhealthy disposition or an unhealthy behavior, by calling out sin that's latent in your heart. That's an act of love. It's a harder act of love than a hug or a card that says thank you but it's an act of love that can be trusted can be trusted to come from a place of love be delivered in love out of love for love in love for you to see you become the person that they always imagined you could be but you want relationships that have staying power you've the writer the proverbs say you got to make a commitment to togetherness to staying connected to your community you got to make a commitment to communicating how much you love and appreciate them in every way you can possibly imagine hard and soft but there's a deeper commitment that we've got to make because those are both commitments that we make to our community the writer of the proverb says there's a commitment we need to make beyond our community in verse 9 He writes this. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart. And the pleasantness of a friend. Springs from their heartfelt advice. When he talks about perfume. He's talking about the ways that ancient people. Used to use dry spices and so on. To fragrance the room. That they were um, living in. Whatever kind of a potpourri. Approach to creating fragrance in a room. When he talks about incense. He's talking about all the liquid ways. That they would um, create fragrance in the room. My wife and I have a. A lamperge i don't know if you know what that is—but it's a you kind of light these fragrant oils on fire, and they they swallow up the odor in the room, and they release these um, absolutely gorgeous fragrances throughout the house in a non-carcinogenic way, unlike candles. And uh, and so, but it's this whole idea—the the picture that being painted is—is is somebody welcoming a friend into their home, and kind of washing them up and lavishing them with this fragrant oil to change the aroma that they bring into the house after walking through the 40 degree heat all day long like pragmatically it helps change the aura of your friend it, for them it helps probably deal with a bit of the embarrassment of smelling like you smell after you've been walking outside all day but at a much deeper level it's a symbolic way to say, you bring this fragrance into our home. To see you on our doorstep is to smell. Is, it, you just bring a beautiful fragrance into our lives. And maybe even at a deeper level, because some of those oils could be very expensive. It was a way of saying, I honor you. You are worth this much to me. It was all about the way you honor a friend In the pleasantness, and and the, the writer compares it to the pleasantness of the beauty and sweetness of their soul interacting with your soul and making an investment in you. It says the pleasantness of a friend comes from their heartfelt advice. It's like they're showering with you with perfume and fragrance, whatever, because they're giving of the sweetness of their soul into your soul to help you become. But not everybody gets to experience that. In verse 7, this is what it says. Another proverb about sweetness. It says, The one who is full loathes honey from the comb. But to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. You've had this experience after Christmas dinner or what have you. You've eaten so much. You've already loosened your belt. And no matter what your host or hostess brings to the table next, you're just going to say no. You have had way too much to eat. Another morsel of food looks disgusting to you. You would turn down peanut M&Ms if they were offered, if such a thing were possible. The one who is full loathes honey from a comb, which was literally the sweetest thing you could eat in the ancient world. That word loath means actually just to trample it underfoot. They so, if you full, if you've had enough to eat, you so disregard the idea of even having the sweetest thing you could possibly eat that you're prepared to trample it under your foot with absolutely no regard. I think he's talking about friendship still he's talking about people who are so full of community that they're not unafraid they're not afraid to trample on the sweetness of what somebody else has to offer it's kind of how people get traded by those of us who would say you know what i got enough friends And not only do you miss out on the sweetness that that person would have to offer, there's a deeper danger that lurks in that kind of attitude that says, I've got enough friends. Because the proverb ends by saying, to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. The greater danger is to the person whose sweetness gets trampled on and ignored. The person who doesn't get invited into community because, hey, I got enough friends. What is bitter tastes sweet. The Germans have a proverb that says hunger is the best cook. I know what it means but I disagree with it. Because when you're hungry you don't need anything to be a good cook. Because you'll eat anything. It's when you're hungry that you'll drive through the drive through It's when you're hungry that you think chips are a meal. It's when you're hungry that you will eat something past its expiry date. When you're hungry, you will eat something that you detest just to have something. I think that what the writer is talking about is people who get ignored in community by people who say, I got enough friends, who don't reach out with an intentional invite to welcome people in and to experience their sweetness. Those people get, who are hungry and starved for community find themselves in a state of mind where they'll accept community from anywhere. I think this is one of the reasons why people get into unhealthy relationships with toxic people who take advantage of them and tear them down. Because they're so starved for community that they'll accept it from wherever it comes. I hear the proverbial, the writer of the Proverbs saying that we need to not just be committed to this beautiful picture of togetherness and this beautiful picture of communicating our love and affection to each other within our community. I hear the writer of the Proverbs saying, but keep your eyes open for those whose sweetness is being trampled underfoot because they're being ignored and marginalized, they're not being involved and included, invited into somebody else's community, beware of what happens to them. Don't trample on those honeycombs. Invite them in so that they don't have to settle for the relationships and friendships that are bitter in the end. The point is this. We believe that God is a trinity, three in one. At God's central core of his being is relationship. And God created us in his image. Which means that the center core of what we are is relationship. God is inviting us to discover what it looks like to experience the meaningfulness of life lived in relationship. In the kinds of robust relationships that have staying power where we get to journey with each other for long stretches of life side by side. If only we can learn to hear and respond to the wisdom of what the scriptures are saying those relationships look like. May this be a month where we discover the power of we in relationships that have staying power. Let's pray together. God, there are so few of us who do relationships naturally and well. I think so many of us, myself as the forefront, can think of a million ways to sabotage the community that you've invited us to live in, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us. Would you take our open hearts and our open spirits this month and would you fill us with your wisdom by your spirit to begin to experience the kind of life you've invited us into, which is at no level really a life of me, Instead, it's a life of we. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.